I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very lucky now to be joined in studio by Davis Smith, founder and CEO of Cotopaxi, an outdoor gear brand. Davis, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, Carl, it's great to be here. Now, you're based in Salt Lake City. That's I am. Right. Yeah. yeah. So th- it's, 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 it's a big trip for you, so I appreciate you making, making the time. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here with you again. Um, so just in full disclosure, uh, D- Davis is a graduate of the Wharton School, and I believe 2011, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, but but through scheduling quirks, I never had you in class, unfortunately. That's right. Yeah. I, I wasn't lucky enough. I know everyone always was fighting to get into your classes, and I never uh, had the chance, but I knew all about you. All right. Well, it's been great since that time to get you know get to know you a little better. All right. So I'm going to point our listeners to your website. Your company's name is Cotopaxi, and you're very lucky to have that domain. Okay, Davis, give us the elevator pitch for Cotopaxi. Yeah, so Cotopaxi is an outdoor gear brand with a social mission at its core. Um, So we're basically building um, the next generation of outdoor brands, uh, targeting the millennial consumer. So uh, really kind of focused on not just selling gear, but creating experiences and uh, also, uh, having core values that inspire the world. So, g- just to drill down a little bit, you say outdoor brand. Give us a sense of maybe some of the some of the kinds of products that you're selling now. Yeah, so we sell packs, we sell outerwear. Uh, for example, puffy jackets that you may see a lot of people wearing. Um, you know, different shells uh, for the outdoors, like it could be a rain shell or a, a ski shell, um, and everything all the way down to tents and sleeping bags. All right, so I guess my cynical, I'll just dive right in with the hard questions. Yeah. Uh, sounds a lot like Patagonia. Why do we need yeah. another Patagonia? Yeah, uh, it's a great question because uh, I'm a big fan of Patagonia and uh, they're also very mission driven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their mission is environmental. And I think at the time, Yvonne Chouinard, the founder, um, he was a pioneer in the way he thought about the environment and how businesses could operate. And he certainly inspired me and I, I think thousands of other entrepreneurs in the way that, and business leaders as, as far as how they think about growing their businesses and protecting the environment. Um, the reality is that that's, uh, you know, that's table stakes now. I, everyone, everyone should be, everyone in the outdoor industry cares about the environment. We all think about how we manufacture and how to have the best impact on, on the earth. Our passion is around people. Um, I, I grew up in the developing world. I moved there when I was four years old and uh, was surrounded by poverty that most Americans don't even understand exists. Mm -hmm. And uh, it shaped me. And so it's something that I've always had a real passion for. I've spent about half my adult life in the developing world. And um, I've always felt like I had a responsibility to help people um, living in extreme poverty. And so that's that's our primary focus is people. All right. Well, uh, I want to just give a shout out to Yvonne Chouinard and and Patagonia. He also inspired me. Patagonia also inspired me in my own entrepreneurial ventures. He has a fantastic book called Let My People Go Surfing. And it's a really nice manifesto about values in business. And really, my takeaway was I didn't have to do it the way everyone else did. I mean, he was very much an iconoclast and made his own way. And so I'll give a shout out to Patagonia for inspiring you, also for inspiring me, and that and it's a it's a really nice book that goes back to the origins of of, of Patagonia. Um, 
All right, so let's drill down on that. What, what You're an outdoor brand. What can you do for people? Yeah, so we have impact in a number of, of different ways. Um, the first is, of course, we use a percentage of our profits to support uh, poverty alleviation. And we focus on three primary categories, uh, healthcare, livelihoods, and education. And uh, these three categories, these three pillars, we believe are inextricably linked to poverty alleviation. And so uh, we, pro- we focus with education with, uh, on primary care or primary education. Um, with healthcare, we focus on um, infant mortality rates and uh, livelihoods. I'm primarily focusing on um, how we can uh, support people with their livelihoods. A lot of times that means entrepreneurial training for women or other, other projects. So that's one way. Um, and I think that's the most obvious way that most people think of a business doing good is through their profits. But we wanted to do much more than that. We didn't want to just have this kind of on the periphery of the brand where we did good kind of on the side. We wanted to build it into everything that we did. And so we've done that through the way that we think about making product. For instance, uh, one of our best-selling jackets is called the Kusa. And we actually uh, went to Bolivia, a place where I used to live. And we started working. Uh, this is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. We went to communities that make about $100 a year that farm llamas, and we started buying llama wool from them and helping improve their livelihoods, developed an entire supply chain where we use this llama wool now as the insulation in these jackets. And so, uh, of course, the jacket has this amazing story that people love sharing because who doesn't want a jacket full of llama? But it's also uh, impacting the lives of these of these amazing people in Bolivia. So that's, um, you know, the way we think about product is different. Um when you order something on our website, order a, a backpack or a jacket, you're actually going to get a handwritten thank you card that's written by a refugee in Salt Lake City, Utah, where we're based. So uh, we have a program where we work with the International Rescue Committee, and um, we give refugees that have been in Utah for less than six months their first job. And so we kind of woven this this do-good mission into everything that we do. Wow, it's it's really interesting. So let me just reiterate. So the the first thing that, of course, essentially any company can do is take a fraction of their profits and and give it to some cause. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's easy because you can rely on somebody else to execute. Money is the ultimate fungible. I mean, sort exactly. of what money is, right? Exactly. Um, and so let, let's start with that one. Mm-hmm. H- how do you find those partners? And 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 is that what you do? In fact, you just you effectively are going to find a partner and just provide some cash. Yes. Yeah. So this is um, you know this is uh, this is a great question, by the way, because I think this is really important in how uh, we can make impact as a business, and I think it's done the wrong way a lot of times. Mm-hmm. So, um, number one, I believe there are nonprofits that have done exceptional jobs of of uh, of creating change in, in around the world. There's no need for me to go create a foundation, a Cotopaxi foundation that goes and tries to replicate what others are already doing better. Mm-hmm. So, um, but then it's a matter of figuring out who those exceptional partners can be. And when we first started the brand, I actually led this initiative myself. And um, I had no background in the, in the nonprofit world. I was just passionate about the space. And I chose nonprofits that I knew about and I was passionate about, and I tied our product directly to a, to a cause. So if you bought the Cusco backpack, you were helping a shelter in Cusco, Peru that helped street children. And I, I knew this, this shelter from my time living in Peru. If you bought the Inca backpack, you were actually helping an orphanage in Bolivia, in this remote part of Bolivia that I, I used to live in. So um, there, I was using causes that I was passionate about. About a year into the business, um, I started realizing this was really hard. And uh, actually, I knew it from the very beginning. But about a year in, I realized I need to go hire an expert. 
And so we went and hired a chief impact officer. And this woman um, joined us from the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Um, she put together Oracle's giving strategy. Um, they manage about $8 billion, including Mark Zucker, a bunch of Mark Zuckerberg's money and others. So she came in and basically fixed everything that I'd messed up. And um, I will say it was it, emotionally, it was challenging to say, you know what? Those causes that I've been wanting to support, they're actually not the best causes. They're not where we can have the, the greatest impact. Um, we can't measure the impact we're having. This orphanage in Bolivia, they don't even have a telephone, uh, let alone email. So um, I was literally like hand-delivering money to them when I'd go visit Bolivia. And um, it, it's just uh, she came in and really kind of helped us rethink about our strategy and how we could have the best, the greatest impact. And so she's gone and chosen those partners, and she has – a long list of things that she kind of looks at in those partners. I'm definitely not the expert in that field, yeah. but um, she's been exceptional. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine a whole bunch of reasons it'd be very hard to do it as the CEO. One would be scaling the activity, the other would be doing it right. Yeah. And um, I suppose those would be the main main ones. Um, give us a sense of what are those criteria. So so how how should you, and maybe we could generalize a little bit, a company that wants to engage with engage a social mission via a cash contribution? How, how would you manage that? Yeah. yeah. So there's a few things that we look at. We look for regional diversity. Mm -hmm. So we don't all want all of our nonprofit partners to be in one region of the world. Um, we, uh, diversity of focus. So kind of targeting these three different pillars that we're targeting. Um, we don't want our money to be their largest or even close to their largest um, source of income um, because then they're dependent on us. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, just not a best practice. So yeah. Um, but then you also have to make sure your investment's meaningful enough that it makes sense for them to engage with mm -hmm. you. Um, so, uh, you know, something else we've kind of looked for is um, nonprofits that are sustainable. So, for example, there's an, an, an amazing nonprofit that we're supporting in Myanmar that's called Proximity Designs. And they basically have gone into um, rural portions of Myanmar and helped farmers. There's one farmer named Katartu, this amazing man with no arms. He was born with no arms, and he's a farmer. And they asked him what his biggest challenge was as he was farming, what, what kept him from succeeding. And he said his biggest challenge was the fact that in the summer, he didn't have enough water to water his crops. Hmm. And so they had designed this treadle pump, a foot-powered water pump that he could then use, very inexpensive, that they manufacture locally. And um, he was able to then increase his crops, uh, the yield of his crops significantly over that year and increase his family's income by $300 that year, which is a tremendous amount of money in rural Myanmar. So, um, but by the sale of, of these pumps that are very inexpensive, but they're able to self-support themselves largely. And so our donation can go a very long way to helping them have impact in these communities. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let me ask a, a sort of a devil's advocate, per perhaps cynical question. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I were a pure free market economist, I would say, uh, Davis, please don't mix these two things. Like, uh, go make a bunch of money. And then if you want to make a personal choice to support these these mm -hmm. enterprises, go ahead and do that. Mm -hmm. um, why is that the wrong answer for Cotopax? Yeah. A um, couple of things, a uh, couple of thoughts on this. So, number one, Bill Gates um, recently, I don't know if you heard him say this, but he said, um, this is just a few weeks ago, he was saying one of his biggest regrets was not starting earlier mm -hmm. in his career. Um, doing good. And I'll tell you why I chose to build this, integrate this into my business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I first became an entrepreneur, um, I was in my young 20s. I started my first business out of undergrad. And I actually, before I started that business, I experimented with a few ideas that had social impact kind of interwoven in the business and they failed. They didn't work. 
And so I kind of put that idea to the side of integrating the social impact because I realized entrepreneurship's hard on its own. Like when you're trying to give away money at the same time, that just doesn't really work mm-hmm. very well. Um, so I first, my first two businesses were businesses that didn't have any social impact at all. But um, why I wanted to build this business a little differently was I believed that I could have a bigger impact on the world by creating a business that had core values that inspired the world than I could if I just did something on my own. Yes, I could just go build this business, and um, at the, when I have an exit at some point, I could just use my money to go have a positive impact. But I think I would have missed a huge opportunity to inspire people. And so um, that's a, in large part what we're doing, is we're building a brand that inspires people to think differently about how they can impact the world. The way that you know, we have, um, whether it's working with refugees, telling those stories, and helping introduce you know, these people to, in our community, um, I think we've been able to change the narrative um, about refugees in our in our local area, and so um, I'm I'm a big believer that businesses can inspire people and can ch- and can um, can really be a part of having uh, change happen. So I think that's one of the responsibilities I have as a business leader. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and I'm speaking with Davis Smith, who's the co-founder and CEO of Cotopaxi. So, so Davis, that's really an argument that says the, the business itself can be a vehicle for change in a way, in a way that's perhaps more powerful than the cash alone. Um, but I was expecting you to say something about your customers. What What is the relationship to the brand and to your customers? Yeah, we have a, actually a, a very unique and, and special relationship with our customers that most e-commerce businesses or digitally native brands don't have. Um, and that's uh, for a, a reason that we kind of chose early on in the business, which was that we didn't want to just build product. We wanted to create experiences. And the day that we turned on our website, we also held an event that we called the Questival. And the Questival is this 24-hour adventure race. Um, We're holding 50 of them this year across the U.S. and Canada. Um, We'll have somewhere around 150,000 participants in these races. And um, this is a way that we basically acquire customers. Um, Young millennials generally will go participate in these races. They put together a team of two to six people. Everyone gets one of our backpacks. And they spend um, these 24 hours adventuring in the outdoors, um, doing service in their local communities. Um, we typically have thousands of pounds of food donated to local food banks, um, thousands of hours of community service done. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, we had our last Questival in Salt Lake City, we had over 1,000 books donated to low-income families for children. Um, we had uh, bikes, helmets, locks, and lights donated to refugees. So it's a way that we can have a, a social impact, and it costs us nothing as a business. All we're doing is asking our loyal customers to go out and have an impact in the world. And so um, that event has been a really unique way for us to have a, actually a physical um, touch point with our customers. And so they meet us, they see us, they they experience the core values of the brand for 24 hours, and then they become evangelists of the brand in a really unique way. Hmm. But it... it, it I'm going to ask a silly question, which is, why do you need the gear part of this business mm-hmm. then? Because it's kind of a pain, isn't it? Uh, yeah, to I mean, actually deal yeah, with you, stuff. Yeah, yeah, Carl, you know, you've made a lot. Of, you know, you're a, you're an amazing inventor. You know, in your own right, and so you that's know, why I know yeah. how hard hard hardware is. Right? Yes, it's it is challenging. I'd yeah. say, um, you know, I did this. I'd say one of the reasons is because uh, it's what I know. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done e-commerce for uh, 13 or so years now, so it's something I understand. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I have a passion for the outdoor space, so that's I chose that category. You know, I grew up. Um, you know, my my dad was an adventurer, so we grew up floating down the Amazon River on a raft that we made ourselves, fishing for prana and um, surviving on uninhabited islands with spears that we'd made ourselves. Mm. And um, just I grew up loving the outdoors, and so that was a, a big passion of mine. Um, but one reason um, to have a physical product versus just maybe in a let's say that the events, the questivals. Right. What if we just did the, the questivals? Yeah, I mean, look at something like CrossFit or, yes, or uh, various adventure races. Or, yeah, Tough, Tough Mudder, exactly. uh, Spartan Race. Yeah. These yeah. these races. Yeah. yeah. So uh, those are great businesses. The problem with those businesses, the way I see it, is that you go do a race, and when it's done, uh, it's over. Your relationship with that with that company is over, unless you go repeat or you do another race. But at mm-hmm. some point. Uh, for most of these races, you, they don't. Most people don't repeat the race, and um, really, the only way to monetize that customer, and which is how you actually create the value they can go use to have an impact, is um, through the events, which only happen uh, you know, maybe once a year. So, by selling physical product, the first touch point with the customer is the event, but that is just the very beginning of our life with that customer. So, they then have seven or ten years to engage with us as a brand, buying product. And continuing, um, you know, once you've done the color run or the Tough Mudder, once you have the T-shirt, you don't, you know, a year later, you're not going to go buy another T-shirt and be like, yeah, I did Tough Mudder a year ago. It's just, it's irrelevant. So that's one reason I feel like this gives us more sustainability as a brand and allows us to sustainably give back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So it, it looks at the the stuff is the way to monetize the mission in some ways. It's exactly. pretty, 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 pretty interesting. And yeah, so I guess another maybe maybe philosophical question about about millennials or, or whoever your target is primarily millennials, is that right? Yeah. So it, it, it's it's a little bit strange to me that we use brands as tribal affiliation, right? This is a commercial product, and somehow I want to badge myself mm-hmm. Patagonia or Cotopaxi or whatever it is. What, what's your take on that? What's going on there? Is it a generational thing? Is it a human thing? Oh, uh, it's definitely a human thing. Yeah. It's been happening for a long time. But I will say, generationally, it is more interesting because millennials we do know are willing to switch brands more easily than people in my generation or, or, or our generation or, or older generations. Even. Mm-hmm. We're, mm-hmm. I think we're you the were, same generation. Probably. No, well, I, Davis, it, this is radio, so people can't see. You, you were like thinking, I'm about to say older generation like you. I better backpedal and rephrase. Well, the thing is, I've, met, right. your, I've met your children. You have adult children. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, um, no, safe to say I'm a boomer. So, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. and I'm a, I'm a, a Gen X. Okay. Uh, I was born yeah. in 78. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, millennials, um, which I'm not a part of, but I like to pretend I'm a part right. of sometimes. Um, you know, they they are willing to switch brands in a way that other, my generation is not, and boomers are not mm-hmm. either. Um, they they want to switch brands to brands that they share values with, and so if they find a brand that they sh- they identify with that shares those values, they are willing to switch um, to to, re- to that brand because they mm-hmm. feel it represents them in some way. And I don't, again, I don't think this is new. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we see this in the cars we drive and mm-hmm. all sorts of things, right? But um, I do think this this younger generation is especially prone to identify with uh, and switch to brands that they feel identify them. Yeah. You know, there is something very fundamental and human, I think, about tribal affiliation. It's always been a source of amazement to me to watch how professional sports teams uh, develop these tribal mm. followings. I mean, 
you know, you think about it. It's a for-profit company just sets up shop in a city, and you can get the entire city to just identify viscerally with that company, which is a sports team. And so I think I think it's that is amazing, right? It's <laughs> I think it's pretty fundamental this sort of tribal affiliation. And so to some extent, brands and companies can use that use that very human tendency to to their advantage, and even better if they use it as a force for good. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I think part of you know creating a movement, uh, which I think is, I think you're right about sports teams mm-hmm. doing that. Um, that's something that I think we've been able to su- successfully do over the last two and a half years of our business is create a movement around, uh, among a segment of, of the population um, that believes in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. All right. I want you to take us back to the beginning of Cotopaxi and I, I guess tell us the origin story. And then and then my follow on question is, is how much the original concept has morphed to where we are today? Yeah, so uh, you know, I talked about my my past growing up in mm-hmm. the developing world, and so I'd always had an interest in finding a way to have social impact. I talked about my past in the outdoors and having a passion for that. And so I was living in Brazil um, when I graduated from Wharton. I moved down to Brazil and launched a business there. Um, that uh, I was fortunate, did well. We um, were Brazil startup of the year in 2012, and um, we were able to raise about 50 million dollars in venture capital. Um, so I did that for about three and a half years and then started um, realizing I was ready to do something different, more meaningful. And uh, I decided that the best way I could do that is through a business. Uh, I knew that a business could, uh, could inspire people, that I could have a tremendous impact through it. I saw examples of this, you know, Patagonia being one of them, Warby Parker, um, some classmates of mine from Wharton um, that I'm friends with that did a great job, Tom Shoes and others. And so I realized, you know, this was possible. Um, while I dabbled in the idea early on in my entrepreneurial career, um, I'd actually seen some success stories now. And so um, I ended up um, moving to Utah. I chose Utah uh, because of its proximity to the outdoors. Um, I felt like there was a great talent pool that we could we could use there and um, started building a team, uh, build a team of uh, five other people, six of us to kind of launch the business. We the first time we met, I met a lot. I've actually connected with a lot of them on LinkedIn. I literally just said, okay, these are the five roles that I need filled to make this business work. Who's the best person on the planet to fill that role? And I went on LinkedIn. I found some people that I'd never even met, but were award-winning gear designers or design, uh, you know, graphic designer and, uh, you know, operations guy and reached out to them and said, hey, this is what I'm trying to build. And I believe I can, you know, we, we can build something that can change the world. And I want you to be a part of building this with me. And I flew into Utah from Brazil. Um, they flew into Utah from other places. We met in a mountain cabin for a couple of days, and we spent two days. Just uh, I kind of shared my vision of what I wanted to build with this brand. And um, you know, we didn't talk about product. We didn't talk about go-to-market strategy. All we talked about were our core values, and um, we identified those core values that have really kind of driven the brand t- till today. Mm-hmm. So, w- what was the original concept statement that you told them? You told them you want. Did you were you as specific as I wanted to be a gear brand? Yes, yeah. I was. Actually, yeah. I had, I had the idea pretty well defined. Okay, um, I knew I wanted to have gear. I knew what type of gear I wanted. Um, I had the social impact idea kind of baked at least the original version of it, which mm-hmm. was tying a mm-hmm. cause to a product. Um, I had our slogan identified: gear for good, um, which is kind of a two part promise that our gear will last for good, but also that will. Our gear will do good in the world. Um, and uh, I had the Questival idea, um, the early concepts of that in mind. Um, so I had an idea pretty baked. Yeah. And and how much has it changed? 
since that? Think back to that first meeting. Yeah. Think back think today. Is it is it about where you were headed? Yes, actually, yeah. remarkably so. I'm yeah. actually surprised myself, given I, I've been an entrepreneur before and I know how things can evolve. So um, it's, I would say, almost identical to the way that we wow. planned it. The, the, one ex- the one change that we really made was the social impact, really, which, which we've already talked about, which was uh, really... Um, we're looking to be a world-class example of how to have social impact through a company. And I think Lindsay, our chief impact officer, has helped us um, do a much better job of that than I was doing. Davis, where's Copaxi come from? Uh, it comes from a volcano in Ecuador, uh, which you know, and uh, I think a lot of, of Wharton folks know because there was a, they used to do a leadership venture. I'm not just still sure if they still do it, but they would take uh, Wharton students down there to climb Cotopaxi. It's almost 20,000 uh, feet in altitude. Um, I used to go backpacking there with my dad when I was a kid, um, you know, growing up uh, in Latin America. And uh, it's always had special meaning to me. My school, the international school I went to as a kid and living in Quito, Ecuador was called Cotopaxi. So um, that's why I chose the name. And we have yeah. a, a llama in the logo, which also, of course, is taken from that region of the world. Yeah. So. Did you did you buy the domain in 1991 when you first started? <laughs> How did you find that domain? You know, it's interesting. Yeah. So yeah. I, I had the idea, uh, you know, the first idea was, okay, I need to have an, a social impact. Mm-hmm. Then I just needed to figure out what was I going to sell. Right. I identified that. And this is all in a matter of like a couple of days. I, I yeah. literally had this whole idea, Carl, in, in 48 hours. I, wow. I couldn't sleep at night. I was like thinking a lot about this idea of like having an impact in the world and I finally got out of bed and just started like writing down my ideas, and I ended up spending 48 hours straight on this couch in my in my living room without sleeping, um, eating like sporadically while I was working. But the literally that the entire early concept came in that 48 hours. It was um, a kind of a unique experience that I hadn't had before. But um, I, uh, you know, it was in those in those 48 hours that I that I came up with with a lot of this. And uh, But I found, I identified the name Cotopaxi and went to see if the domain was available, which I knew it wouldn't be. But it turns out it wasn't being used, which was good news for me. Um, it was actually a, a man who had been a, a teacher at um, the international school there um, a number of years earlier and um, was kind of just the sitting The same up. school you'd been yes, to? Yes. Wow. Uh-huh. And um, I didn't know him, but uh, he had used the site for a while to kind of talk about outdoor adventures and climbing. He was a climber and mountaineer. And, uh, but the domain wasn't being used. And so I contacted him and said, hey, you know, I'm looking to build this business and this name means a lot to me. And uh, would you be willing to sell it? And he sold it to us and it wasn't, wasn't too expensive. I mean, it wasn't crazy cheap either, but. Um, so I, I get this question from entrepreneurs all the time. And I wonder your opinion on this. Um, you, you were right there on day one and you were looking at the, at the company name and the domain. Had it not been available would you have called it Cotopaxi.io or would you have found a new no. name? Yeah. Yeah. I would have done that com for sure. Yeah. You know, I have some unique experiences with domains and I've had some uh, some some great learning experiences. But, All right. Um, tell us about them. Yeah. So uh, my first business was a business called PoolTables.com. And we actually started with a different name. Uh, the first uh, 24 hours or so, uh, we were we called ourselves Billiards Express. Mm. Uh, we got a cease and desist immediately uh, telling us, hey, that's our business name. You can't use it. And it was like, um, we were selling on eBay at the time. And yeah. I was a kid. I had no idea. I didn't yeah. even think of like, hey, what if someone else had this name? And so we changed the name to Billiard X, E-X. But um, no one knew how to spell it, including my mom. Mm-hmm. People were saying, we're making billiard plural, so billiards yeah. X, which means oh, billiard sex. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. obviously, that after a while, we realized that wasn't a great domain to right. have. So uh, we ended up finding this uh, domain pooltables.com, which someone owned. 
and we contacted him. He was willing to sell it to us. He said he'd finance it for us, meaning we basically paid monthly payments over mm -hmm. a certain number of years. And it was not cheap, but we saw a tremendous impact on the business when we switched to that domain. And uh, for us, it was low risk. If the domain didn't have an impact mm -hmm. after two or three months, we could have stopped paying. Uh, he got to keep the money that we paid mm -hmm. him over those few months, but it was a great experiment. And if it does work, we keep paying until the domain's ours. And yeah. so we used that strategy. Um, then I went to, uh, after business school, I went to Brazil and started baby.com.br. And um, when we first had the idea, I, I bought a domain called fraudas.com. <laughs> fraudas means diapers. Okay. And of course, diapers.com, uh, everyone knows, is a huge success story here in the U.S. And I was pitching my first investor, my first VC pitch ever. Mm. I was so nervous. And mm. this VC basically says, why did you choose this name? And this investor had invested heavily in Brazil. And um, we said, well, this means diapers uh, in Portuguese. He's like, I know that, but why did you choose .com? Everything in Brazil is oh. .com, .br. And it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that. We're, we're just, uh, this is a placeholder. We didn't tell him we'd spent like five grand buying this domain. Oh. We were like sick to our stomachs. You know, yeah. it's like, oh my gosh, we made such a blunder. And um, but we ended up finding, uh, we made a huge list of domains that we loved and baby.com.br was at the top of the list. We convinced uh, this owner of this domain in Brazil. He bought 70 domains in 1999. Mm -hmm. He hadn't sold one yet. Uh -huh. And we tried to get him to finance it for us, but he refused. And um, so basically what we did is we told him, hey, you know, he's asked for this tremendous amount of money, um, six figures, multiple, you know, pretty big chunk of money for this domain which was, felt ridiculous, but at the same time, we were getting a lot of momentum with investors on this idea, and we ended up saying, hey, you know what? We'll give you that amount, but you have to give us 90 days, and, um, and you have to put coming soon on the, on the domain, and uh, then we went and sold it to investors as we were baby.com.br, and uh, we ended up raising about $4.5 million for the, on a PowerPoint, and I think in large part because we had this great domain, and we did tell them we hadn't fully paid for it, but we... We closed on the day, the 90th day. And we closed, we got the money, and we sent it to him, and we got that domain. So, so. I, I want to just circle back on this because it's, it's such, these are such great examples, and you're so experienced. I think it's worth sharing this experience. So you didn't, you, you didn't say directly, but, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. I mean, potentially, and, I, and I'm guessing pool tables was, also, was six figure. Uh, uh, it was also uh, six figure. Six yeah. figure, multiple six figure, right? Yeah. So, so that suggests that it's really valuable. To the business, and but but you said something very interesting was it's a kind of it's a kind of signal of seriousness in part to investors. Uh, is, is that right? I mean, you you, you that, that was part of the the, the pitch. Ab for, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if if you're going to make a play, you know, for in Brazil, we we wanted to own the baby category, yeah. and if you have that domain, that says something about how serious you are about owning it, right. and the fact that we've been able to creatively negotiate this deal. I think said a lot about us as entrepreneurs how scrappy we were, and they thought, "Hey, if these guys are thinking this way, like this is the right type of entrepreneur we want right. to be investing in." Right. So, yeah. And there are a lot of ex examples like that. I, I'm thinking of uh, Mint.com is a similar story. Nest Nest Labs, mm -hmm. uh, similar story. They got Nest.com. Domains like that signal that you mean. Did business. you invest in Nest? <laughs> I regrettably didn't. Oh, uh, I thought for sure you you did. No, uh, yeah. I, in fact, my co-host, Rob Connybeer, it's his single yes, biggest outcome. Yes, I remember outcome. that. Yeah. And, and I teased him incessantly when he made the investment. I said, what, oh, Rob, you, really? <laughs> you invested at a $60 million pre-money valuation in this company. Are you crazy? And then he never misses an opportunity to rub that into me, uh, that, <laughs> that they sold it for $3.2 billion. Well, you've yeah. had some great angel investments yourself, so I think uh, you've, you've done fine. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's really good advice. So uh, treat the name like you mean it, and it's one of the elements of social proof, I think, that 
signals to investors that you're serious. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. It doesn't mean you have, like, for example, with this business, I didn't choose backpack.com yeah. or outdoors.com. I, I chose something different, right? But um, uh, so I, f- I think it does vary from business to business. Right. But, um, but yeah, I think it does, it does matter what domain you have. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Uh, Patagonia would be very different if it were by Patagonia.com and yes. same with Cotopaxi. So yeah. it, I, I think it's very, very smart and it certainly reinforces what I believe about that. You know, uh, on the subject of investors, it, I wouldn't have guessed that an apparel brand is necessarily the easiest thing to to venture back. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how you did that and, and what you think the success factors were. Yeah, yeah um, I will say it hasn't been easy. Um, uh, in fact, uh, we just today uh, we closed uh, a Series B round. Which oh is wow! Congratulations! Yeah. yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, but uh, you know, we've been lucky to be able to raise um, venture capital. We raised a, a seed, a Series A, and a Series B, and have some phenomenal investors involved. But you know, the seed round, I pitched over a hundred different VCs and angels. I have uh, a detailed list of anyone I talked okay, to. Okay, hold it right there. I got to underscore that. Say that number again. Yeah. How many pitches? Over a hundred. Yeah. Wow. So um, I, I always de- I have a very detailed list of every investor I ever talked to, and um, and with notes, and I try to learn from every pitch. And uh, of those of that over a hundred, I had about. Probably 65 no's and about 35 yeses. But I will say most of those yeses came at the very end. Mm. You know, once you get the lead to say, I'm in, all of a sudden everyone's interested. Um, But the first few weeks uh, were just filled with no's. And I admit there were times when I was discouraged and thought, man, I've just left my business in Brazil to go launch this. And uh, this is really hard. Um, You know, and I think... You're right. It's a very saturated space, the outdoor industry, you know, apparel and packs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what really resonated with um, these investors was, uh, number one, my experience as an entrepreneur already. I, right. I certainly know that contributed. But also, I think the passion that they they felt as, as I was explaining why I wanted to make a difference in the world and how I believe this brand um, had the values to go inspire the world and to go build the next billion-dollar outdoor brand. And... Um, so a lot of people didn't believe, and um, I hope to prove them wrong, of mm. course. Uh, but uh, you know, we're fortunate to have some great investors that had the vision to to kind of back us early. What would you say? I want to circle back on this question of finding the lead because that's also the experience I observe. That once you get somebody credible to commit, others will come in. What What would be your advice on securing that lead? You have thirty. Let's say you have thirty-five people who've all said, "Hey, circle back with me when you've got a lead." Uh, how do you how do you close the lead? Uh, number one, it's about a relationship. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to do is to build a relationship with those investors. Um, I think another thing that can be distracting is you have so many other people to talk to. Uh, I t- you know I told you how many people I pitched. A lot of people signal interest, um, and your temptation is to keep going back to those people, saying, "Okay, yeah, you're still in, and could you invest a little bit more, or whatever." Mm-hmm. Those people, uh, if they're not willing to lead, it, they're irrelevant. Yeah. You, without a lead, you go nowhere. Mm. You have to have a lead. And so you have to be relentless about pursuing the right investor for to be that lead. And once you start um, building those relationships, um, it's, uh, you have to create some urgency. Mm. Um, you know, it's, I've learned a lot over, over my last few businesses raising capital. And one thing that I do now is 
I actually keep a running list. I have a list of about 250, close to 300 investors that I've talked to over the, over the years. Mm-hmm. And I give them updates on my business. Hmm. Every couple months, I shoot them an update. And I just say, hey, this is where we're at. This is what we're doing. These are the exciting milestones we've hit. And uh, You should have invested. You, yeah. you, don't, you don't rub their no, nose in it. No, 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 for sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of it's interesting. Um, last, as we were getting ready to do this B, we ended up with 25 different VCs that flew out to Salt Lake City to go meet with us. And it was after I sent an update and just said, hey, we just hit these big milestones. And all of a sudden, they've known who I am for a while. They've been following our story for the last year or two. And it was the right timing for them. Or they got, you know, for some reason, it sparked their interest. And um, I think constantly dripping investors with information about what you're doing. And again, building a relationship of trust. And um, I think that's really important. And I think a lot of time uh, entrepreneurs miss that opportunity and they just go to investors when they need money instead of really building long-term relationships with them. Yeah. Wow, those are great insights. I want to just underscore them. So there are two things I I noticed. One was, I took note of, one was you really need a database. This is going to be, it's like a CRM system for investors. These are going to be people that are going to be important to you your whole career. Yes. And so you treat that as seriously as you take treat your other professional network. And then the second thing was this idea that what might be wrong for an investor on, an, on a seed round could be right for them on a B round and, or in your next venture. Yeah. And so keep them warm. Keep the lead warm and build the relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you pointed out, this is a long game. Yeah. Um, you know, in the moment as an entrepreneur, you think, oh, my whole life is this business. But a few years down the road, you realize, hey, I just I exited that last business and now I'm ready for the next one. And so these are people, like you said, these are people I'm going to be working with and rubbing shoulders with uh, for, I, I hope, a very long time. Davis, just to follow up on the on the funding, you just closed the Series B. Did you say today you closed it? Yeah. Wow. Today. Okay, so it's very fresh. Yeah, I'm mind. really happy today. Money <laughs> hit the bank, you know. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you announce uh, it? I won't. I'm not going right, to officially announce it yet. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. fine. It's a, yeah. But, but we'll, we'll look for it in the okay, yeah. crunch space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Keep an eye out. Uh, but, but tell us the what what is... Actually, let's take all three rounds, the seed, the A, Series A, and the Series B. Just summarize what investors are looking for at those three rounds and what's different, what changes, what the what the questions are at the A and the B that weren't raised. At yeah, the, at the it's C. very, very different, yeah. right? So the seed round, um, especially for us, uh, we were pre-product. Um, we just barely, I barely put together this team, and it was really a vision and a PowerPoint. And so um, what they're looking for is an entrepreneur they believe in. That's more than anything, more than the idea. It's about finding an entrepreneur that they really resonate with. And that's, again, why those relationships are so critical. Um, you know, once you uh, are raising the Series A, it's a very different story because all of a sudden it's, not, it's no longer just about the entrepreneur. It's about what have you done with the business. And, but there's still a strong element of who the entrepreneur is because it's still very early mm-hmm. at the Series A stage. Right? What did you, where, where were you when you raised your A? So we were, we had launched, we'd raised, when we raised the, the Series A, we had launched the seed money, uh, or we'd raised the seed money about 12 months earlier. Mm-hmm. And the business had been live for about eight or nine months. Um, so we had about eight or nine months of, of, uh, of data that we could kind mm-hmm. of speak to and that we could basically say, hey, this is the traction that we've had. Um, and so, you know, they're digging into some of those numbers, but you still don't have a great understanding of, you haven't done much cohort analysis. I mean, there, there, you just have such a short um, life still. There's the, you don't know a lot about your customers right. yet. And so again, they're still looking a lot at the entrepreneur, but also, you know, have, do you, have you seen enough, you know, do you have product market fit? You know, do mm-hmm. you 
have you figured out a way to scalably acquire customers? Uh, you know, they're looking at the unit economics. But uh, when you go to the Series B, it re- literally almost everything else is forgotten except for the, the numbers. Wow. It's all about the unit economics. And no matter how much they like you, if the unit economics aren't there at this stage, it's it's that's sad. You missed yeah. out. You know, yeah. you're missing out. So, but that said, I'd still say the relationship matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a big believer in relationship building over the long term, and I think I, I think that makes a big difference. Not just in getting the right investors on board, but once they're on board, making sure you have that great relationship with your with your own board. You know, we spend so much time as entrepreneurs shaping the culture of our team. And I think sometimes we forget to shape the culture of our board. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's really critical mm-hmm. as well. All right. Well, you, you mentioned the unit econ- economics. Let's dig in on that a little bit. Uh, and and that ties very closely to channel and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I suppose supply chain more generally. So talk to us about unit economics. How do they work in this industry and, and, and how have you tweaked them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll just talk about it fairly broadly. Yeah. But, um, you know, for an e-commerce business, uh, you're – you're basically looking at a number of different things. Um, you're looking at the average order value, the AOV, um, how much a typical customer, or the average customer is spending when they buy from you, um, how frequently they're buying, um, how often they're repeating. Um, you're looking at uh, margin, so what's the product margin or the gross margin of, the, of each sale, um, so, uh, how much is basically, con- and the contribution margin, of course. And uh, I think maybe the most important, you're looking at CAC or the cost of acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes you know CPA. So you're basically looking. You're trying to measure on on a blended average how much are we paying to acquire customers, mm-hmm. um, how much are we, how much money are we making from that customer. So in, in the e-commerce space, most e-commerce CEOs are going to be trying to break even in that first order. Mm-hmm. If you've had payback in the first order, so if you're spending, let's say, uh, forty dollars to acquire the average customer, you're hoping to get at least forty dollars of profit in that first mm-hmm. order, so that you don't have to rely on them coming back before you make money. And of course you want them to come back, right. but um, there's just a lot of risk. If you're, if you, there are a number of very large e-commerce companies um, that take a year to get payback from those mm-hmm. customers. And that's just, uh, that's a lot, ris- that's risky. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem that we've seen with e-commerce companies is a lot of them have been able to raise tremendous amounts of money. And, um, you know, at first they have this low-hanging fruit, and they're able to capture that online, and they're willing to spend that money, and so they throw a lot of money at the customer acquisition channels online. And over time, those channels get more and more expensive. And the problem with them getting more expensive is pretty soon um, you start realizing, hey, this isn't that great for us. Um, you know, we're not getting payback in the first order anymore, but you can't turn it off, right? Because the moment you stop spending, your growth stops. And uh, if you're expecting to raise more money, you can't let it stop. Mm-hmm. So then it's just this like this cycle that you have to constantly go raise bigger amounts of money. So this is an area where I'd seen this happen in my last business. I've seen this happen with friends' businesses and thought, you know, we need to acquire customers in a very different and unique way. And that's where we came up with the Questival um, and some other really unique ways of acquiring customers. The, the one thing I will say about the, the Questival, and then we can kind of jump uh, to wherever you would like, but the Questival, these races that we that I talked about earlier, these 24-hour adventure races, they're profitable. And so our, our customer acquisition cost, our CAC, is actually negative. Um, we see a negative customer acquisition cost on these customers, um, which they're basically paying us to be acquired. So this year we acquire 150,000 new racers or customers through the Questival. They, we, didn't, we didn't spend any money to acquire them. So it's a really great way to go scale a brand 
um, efficiently. And because a huge fraction of them then buy from you. Exactly. That, that's why. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. Really interesting. You know, I want to turn to a, a related question, which is more on the on the margin side. Um, if if I were to look at at you know the closest an a- analog is probably Patagonia. They have a blended retail strategy, right? So they're gonna they have an e-commerce business that I think is run somewhat autonomously. They have their own stores, then they sell through third parties. Mm-hmm. How did you think about that channel question? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, incumbent brands like Patagonia, the North mm-hmm. Face, Arcterics, and others, um, Columbia. You know, they've been around a long time, 50, mm-hmm. 60, 70 years. And so they have legacy channel conflicts, which make it very difficult, actually, for them to sell online very efficiently. Mm-hmm. And it's not part of their DNA. So mm-hmm. um, typically you'll see that uh, these brands, their e-commerce channel represents 10% or less of their revenue. Um, sometimes it's slightly more, but should hover around there. And they're, they're primarily what's driving their sales is uh, third-party retailers. It's uh, in the outdoor space. It's REI, for instance, or backcountry.com. And so um, those retailers, of course, they control a lot. They control everything from the colors that they're choosing in their product to um, what type of product they're making. And so um, they lose a lot of that control. And they also have these very long timelines, uh, anywhere from 18 to 24 and longer months, um, to make from the time a product goes into that into development until it's on the retail store. So for us, we really felt like online, being a digitally native brand, we had this huge advantage, strategic advantage, that we could we could learn and adapt quickly. Um, we could launch product within four to six months instead of 18 to 24. Um, you know, we could see trends and act on them very quickly without having to worry about uh, these conflicts. That said, um, as the brand grows and scales, you start looking at these opportunities saying, hey, this is a great way for me to build my brand. So REI is now, this spring is going to carry our product, some of our product in all their stores, 148 doors. Wow. Um, Nordstrom is starting to carry the product. And the way we look at it is like, this is not a way for us to drive revenue. It's a way for us to build brand. Mm-hmm. And we don't sell them all of our, our catalog. Mm-hmm. We give them a few SKUs that allow people to be introduced to the brand. And hmm. we hope that they'll come back to our site and buy directly from us. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the other thing that needs to be underscored there is the is the hit on margin when you go through uh, the, the channel as well. I mean, yes. you go from, I don't know, 70% gross margin to 20% gross margin, something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it, it, it has a significant impact um, on your margin. The way, uh, and this was a huge debate for, for me when we were exploring this option. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I reached out to a number of friends um, and some who are, a lot of them are investors. Um, Dave and Neil from Warby Parker. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I talked to Jeff Curl from Stance, the SOC company. I talked to Brian Lee, the CEO of The Honest Company with Jessica Alba. Um, and I talked to Andy Dunn from Bonobos. And, um, you know, they, all of them have very different strategies as far as how to use wholesale or if, whether to use wholesale at all. And um, Brian Lee from the, from the Honest Company basically told me, I'm agnostic. I really don't care where I sell it because if I sell it through Target, for instance, I don't have to acquire the customer. I don't have to fulfill the product and I don't have to support the, I don't have to do the customer ser- support after. So those costs go away, which basically the margin ends up being at the end of the day, almost the exact same. Yeah. Um, and so he's pretty liberal in his way of thinking about mm-hmm. how, to, how to use wholesale. Others are, you know, kind of say, hey, you know, that we own the customer when we sell direct to consumers. So they're more valuable customers to us, which is true. So I think it's somewhere in some balance in the middle there. All right. Well, Davis, we just have a, a couple of minutes, but you're a serial entrepreneur. You, This is your third significant venture, uh, uh, Cotopaxi. 
And I wonder if you, if, if you reflect on, on what you would do on your fourth, not what the venture would be, but how you would approach it and would, would you approach it differently? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I will say I've learned a lot each venture, and mm-hmm. this one I've built very differently. Um, uh, you know, this one we focus so much on culture. And, um, you know, to build an exceptional brand, you have to have exceptional culture. Mm-hmm. They're just two sides of the same coin. And so... Uh, definitely the fourth venture, I, I would continue to make additional focus on how do I build the best culture to retain and attract talent. Um, I choose a category that's less saturated. <laughs> it's a, you know, this, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun, uh, but it is a very saturated space, which makes it challenging. Um, but we've had a, so much fun. I, in some ways, I think I, I, just, I, I might actually do this the rest of my life, Carl. Seriously, this has been so much fun. Um, but yeah, there's, there's every once in a while you see a business take off, uh, like Albert's, yeah. you know, which we know, uh, Joey's, uh, from the class of 2010. We're uh, both wearing them. I know we are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, great shoes, the most comfortable shoes I've ever owned. And, um, you know, they have a single product. Exactly. And I look at yeah. that and go, Oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong? We have like all these different SKUs and, right. um, you know, so there's, you learn all the time, and uh, not that I would change the way we we did necessarily code epoxy, but um, yeah, there's de- you definitely learn a lot in the process. Yeah, well, it's and you're so thoughtful about your experience. It's been very useful to hear your reflections on the first three. And if you do it the rest of your life, awesome. If you do a fourth, we'll have you back to hear talk right. about the lessons learned. Yeah. Um, Thanks so much for joining in the studio. Thanks for coming in. It makes a big difference. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So be sure to check out Code Epoxy. It's codeepoxy.com, C-O-T-O-P-A-X-I.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.